All right. Well, I hope that you had a good week. And, um, and in fact, I saw on Tuesday, which is Groundhog Day, uh, I saw this tweet and I thought this was kind of interesting. Um, <coughs> so, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. I have, I have no comment. Um, so, hey, so I uh, got a, my wife and I recently, we got a, um, uh, recall letter in, uh, in the mail for one of our vehicles. And uh, I thought this was great. I, I, I read it, you know, and we've had vehicles recalled for all sorts of things before. Um, so it was not a big deal until I got near the end. So it was long and a lot of legalese, but let me read you just part of it. It says, your GM vehicle is being recalled because of a safety issue where engine oil may drip onto the hot surface of the exhaust manifold and result in a fire. GM will repair your vehicle free of charge. However, the replacement parts at this time do not exist. <laughs> now, when the parts are available, um, you will be notified and the repair will be scheduled. All right, that sounds good. And then in the bottom, it says this. In the meantime, it's perfectly safe to drive your vehicle, but you are advised to not park it inside a garage or a structure since fire risk exists even when the vehicle is not in use. <laughs> so when I, I kind of read it and I'm like, huh, and, I, uh, like, it, and, and as I read it, it made me think about, again, like my initial reaction is, now wait a minute, it's, uh, so it's safe to drive. And I guess my, my thought was, well, you can always just open the door and jump out, right? If you're driving in the car, catch it on fire. But if it's in the garage, right? I mean, it might. So don't park it in the garage. Or as somebody told me, well, maybe you do want to park it in the garage, right? <laughs> kind of depends. But my thought was, well, why don't we just not drive the car until it's fixed, right? But it made me think again about like just the way our world is, a little bit upside down, a little outside in. It's like, I was thinking, I'm not putting my, my wife and my kids in that vehicle. Like, hey, you know, have a nice trip and we'll see. I hope the car doesn't catch on fire. And you know, here's a cup of water in case it does. And like, I don't know, that's just not the way I work. I'm like, hey, let's fix the inside of the car. Let's get that all taken care of. And then we can think about driving it around. But again, this is kind of the world that we live in. It's kind of outside in, it's upside down. And sometimes the things we do in this world just don't make any sense to me. Now we're in a passage of scripture where it's kind of like that. Jesus is delivering what we call the six woes. And I'm calling it the six woes of, of dirty cup living. And we get that from verses 39 and 40 in this passage. He says, now then you Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? So Jesus is talking to a group of people who were just focused on the outside. Am I looking right? Am I, am I styling? Is my hair looking good? Am I wearing the right clothes? Do I say the right words? Do I, write, do I have the right titles um, and initials but, you know, behind my name? Do I live in the right neighborhood? Do I drive the right car? Do I look good? To the detriment of their inside. Because inside, he says, they're, they're death, they're, they're dying, there's lives, there's greed. He says, did not he who make the outside make the inside also? So Jesus pronounces these six woes, their pronouncements of judgment or sorrow, because Jesus can see where these things lead. When you live a dirty cup life, it leads to a place that is not good. So last week we looked at the first three woes. We talked about dirty cup giving. And, and if you were here last week, you might remember Jesus talked about religious leaders, the Pharisees, who tithed uh, all the way down to their spice rack. 
You know, if they had like 10 mint leaves, they'd, they'd bring one to church and they'd drop it in the offering. So they were tithing all the way down to the spice rack. But when it came to people who were in need, when it came to feeding people and, and clothing people that Jesus cared about, they didn't do that. Jesus says that was not acceptable. Dirty cup giving. They're just giving so people were impressed. Not giving to show God that they love him and honor him. There's dirty cup honor. That's, that's these, these people, what they wanted was the praise of other people. Instead of the honor that God gives to people who humble themselves and serve others. So Jesus just said, you guys on the outside, you want to live in such a way that everybody just praises you. But here's a better way to live. Live humbly and, and humble yourself and from the inside out, serve other people. Put other people first. And the third one was what we call dirty cup influence. That is people who, who somehow had thought that they were helping other people spiritually when in fact they were contaminating them. So Jesus gives these three uh, woes to a group of people called the Pharisees. Now, in those days, and we, we told you this last week, there were the scribes and the Pharisees. So the scribes were also called lawyers. And uh, they were they're called lawyers because it was about the law of God. And uh, the lawyers were the theologians, and the lawyers would come up with rules and regulations and interpret scripture, hand it down to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees would kind of, you know, enforce it on everyone. So these first three are against the Pharisees. And then when the passage ended last week, it said one of the lawyers uh, answered Jesus and said, you know, teacher, in saying these things, and I'll kind of paraphrase it, he says, in saying these things to the Pharisees, those people over there, we were kind of insulted. Like, we know you weren't talking to us. We, we know obviously you didn't mean to insult us, but we were kind of insulted, right? So Jesus looks at them, and in the, in the next three woes, he's basically, what he says is, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I left you out, that I didn't in, indirectly offend you. So let's do that, right? So here we go. Let's start with four, uh, woe number four, which we're going to call dirty cup ministry. Dirty cup ministry, and what I mean by that is where we place the burden of man-made rules and, and preferences and, and rituals on other people instead of God's life-giving word. So let's look at that in verse 46. Jesus said, and you experts in the law, that's what they were. They, were, they were lawyers. You experts in the law, woe to you. So woe number four. Because you load people down with burdens that they can hardly carry and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. So here's the, here's the woe basically. He says, you have taken God's perfect word, his life-giving law, his word that sets us free, and you have added your rules and you've added your preferences and you've added your likes and your dislikes and you've mixed it up in scripture and then you added rules to the rules to the point that it's an it's an impossible burden for anyone to, to lift. No one can do this. Now, the Old Testament, we're told, has about 613 laws. And we know that in the mission of the, the Jews, it added about 6,000 laws to the 613. Think about that. 6,000. So uh, let me give you one example. For, uh, the fourth commandment, which we find in Deuteronomy 5, 12. So this is, in my mind, this is very simple. This is very easy. In Deuteronomy 5.12, here's one of those 613. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy or separate is what it means unto God. As the Lord your God commanded you. Now, what does that mean to keep it holy? Six days you shall labor and do all of your work. It's the six days you work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath. That is, it's a rest to the Lord your God. And on it, watch this, and on it you shall not do any what? 
any work. All right, does that seem complicated? Not really. Don't work. You get one day off. Woohoo! All right, I, that sounds great. Now, why would we do that? Because you are to remember that you were, that is our forefathers, they were slaves in the land of Egypt. So he's just like, do you remember that? They were slaves in the land of Egypt, right? And, and the Lord your God brought them out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Like, remember that? So God rescued you. God brought you out from the land of Egypt. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So here's what the Pharisees did to the Sabbath. What's the Sabbath about? Don't work. What's the Sabbath about? Take a nap, right? Have some rest. Enjoy God. That's the bottom line. Enjoy God. You're free. Here's what the Pharisees did. They divided, they took the word work, and they decided most people aren't smart enough to know what work is, so they divided it into 39 categories. They decided there's 39 different categories of work, and each category had subcategories in it. And one of the rules in those subcategories was that you were not to carry a burden. If you carried a burden on the Sabbath, that was work. But then people would say, well, what's a burden? What constitutes a burden, right? So the Pharisees came up with this, the the lawyers. They decided that a burden was to carry anything that was equal to or heavier than a dried fig. Right? That makes a lot of sense. So that was the rule. So then they would come up, you could buy these weights. It was the official weight of a dried fig, because some deviated. So you would buy it, and then you'd have to, like, kind of memorize. Oh, that's about a fig. That's about a half a fig, right? You'd have to, and, and then you were allowed to carry less than the weight of a dried fig. However, however, if you, like, maybe you were, you had a dried fig, it's something the weight of a dried fig, and you came to a doorway, and let's say you, you needed both hands to open the door, and you put the dried fig down to open the door. You couldn't pick it back up, because that would be considered d- double fig carrying, and you weren't allowed to do that. That was like, that was a rule. So here, so watch, they had this rule, a whole dried fig thing, which you think would be complicated enough, and yet it's not. Let me read for you, uh, this is a paraphrase from the mission that goes on. So there's the weight thing, and then on top of that, it says this, follow with me here. A man may not carry a burden though, even if dried fig burden. He may not carry a burden in his right hand or his left hand, or in his bosom or in his shoulder, but he may carry it on the back of his hand <laughs> or with his foot or with his mouth or with his elbow or in his ear. I'm not making this up. This is, I'm, all right, or in his hair, probably not, uh, or in his wallet carried mouth downward or between his wallet and his shirt or in the hem of his shirt, or in a shoe, or in his sandal, all right? So you can't, again, you can't really make this stuff up. The, the point is this, the, well, you can, I mean, because they did, but the religious leaders, basically, they, they heap ridiculous rules on people so that instead of enjoying the Sabbath, and this is just the tragedy in it, instead of enjoying the Sabbath, they turn it into a burden, Instead of enjoying a unique day with God, it wasn't even about God at all. It was just rules and regulations and my getting it. Do you think that we ever do that today? You think we do that in the church? Parents, you think we ever do that with our kids? We just take simple principles God gives us and we make it so complicated that even our kids can't enjoy it. You think we do that in ministry? You think we do that with one another? See, that's what dirty cup ministry does. It just heaps burdens on other people to the point that you can't enjoy God anymore. Dirty cup ministry requires that spirituality must be hard, 
Following Jesus has to be difficult, right? No, no double fig carrying on the Sabbath or what was you, right? No, I mean, it's like, yeah, you, you got to read the Bible every day and not, well, and if you enjoy it, then you're not doing it right, okay? It's got to be, it's got to be for an hour. It's got to be at 3.45 in the morning. You got to be on your knees until it, you know, until it hurts. No Advil in this, all right? It's got to be hard. It's got to be tough, right? We can only sing worship songs by dead guys. No, no new songs, right? Because that would be fun. Like it might be upbeat. None of that, no, no drums, no, no uh, hands in the air, right? Just keep your hands down at your side. Uh, no enjoying worship. No, I, I knew a family growing up where they were like no dessert. They would never eat dessert because they, con- they considered that conspicuous consumption and, and that was just going all over, over the top and, and God didn't want you to have dessert. Like no, no dessert in the family of God. Don't, you know, you can't enjoy God. No, no. So we said this a few weeks ago, no beer, Right? So no beer, you guys. Like, and I mentioned a few weeks ago that somebody came up to me and said, oh, you know, I was, at a, I was at a pub recently and I saw somebody from our church and uh, they were drinking a, a microbrew and I'm really concerned about their salvation. So it's, it's great because I still have people coming up to me going, was it me? Right? And I, <laughs> I still like, I, I'm like, no, I didn't even know you drank beer. But I do now. It's good to know. Um, you know, Christians are like, well, you can only worship on Saturday, right? It's got to be Saturday. Or, oh, you can't worship on Saturday. It's got to be on Sunday. Or, you know, you can't have instruments in the worship service because that, would, that wouldn't be right. No. Here's a good one. Like, I went to a college where you weren't allowed to play card games. You weren't allowed to play any games at all whatsoever with playing cards because everyone knows that Go Fish is a gateway to high-stakes poker, right? That's the way it works. So, you know, you don't do that. But the point is this. Like, no one joined Jesus. No one joined salvation. Bah humbug, it's, it's got to be hard. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, speaking about this very, very thing, Jesus says this, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened by man-made religion, by rules, by the preferences of other people, adding to the Bible, adding to scripture and forcing that upon you and judging you, judging you if you don't do it. And Jesus says, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. He says, for I am I'm gentle and humble in heart. And you will find, again, notice, and you will find what? Rest. You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Is there a, is, is following Jesus, is, that, is it hard sometimes? Yeah. Are there demands at times? Yes. But the point is this. It's a lot easier to follow Jesus than to not follow Jesus. But when we get in the way and we make it it harder to follow Jesus than Jesus made it, when we make it harder for our kids to follow Jesus than Jesus made it, when churches make it harder for people who come to follow Jesus than Jesus made it, that's dirty cut ministry. That's not what God has called us to. Inside out ministry is different. Here's why inside out is different. Inside out says this. First, I am going to find my rest in Jesus. I'm going to find my peace in Jesus. I'm going to find the grace of God in my own life on the inside. And then I will let it come out of me to the people around me. See, I find often, I think oftentimes the reason we place so many burdens and preferences on other people is because we have not yet found our rest and our acceptance in Christ. 
Inside Out ministry says, first I'm going to find who I am in Jesus, and then I'm just going to let that spill out to the people around me. Dirty Cup ministry number five, because we got to get through six. Dirty Cup respect. Dirty Cup respect is to act respectful of God's word on the outside, but to reject it on the inside. Say, well, how does that work? Verse 47. Woe to you because you build tombs for the prophets. And it was your forefathers who killed them. So now, prophets were these Old Testament guys that God would speak through. They were like the mailmen, right? So maybe God would go to a prophet and say, I want you to go speak to these people or you know, judgment on these people or encouragement or whatever it was. So you testify that you approve of what your forefathers did. They killed the prophets and you build their tombs. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that have been shed since the beginning of the world. Now, that's pretty, that's pretty heavy stuff, right? From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, Jesus speaking to the crowd in front of him, you will be held responsible for it all. Now, the blood of Abel to Zechariah, this is interesting. He basically identifies Abel as a type of, of, of prophet all the way to Zechariah. Abel was the first person to be murdered, if you will, because of his faith. Zechariah, he identifies as the last um, before the coming of Christ. And these prophets were killed by their Jewish forefathers who, who rejected God's message to them. And, and now Jesus' generation comes along. And there's kind of two ways to take what he's saying here. Some take it to mean um, Jesus was saying your forefathers killed him and now you finish the job by making sure they're in the tombs and they're staying there. But another way to understand what he's saying is this. Your forefathers killed the prophets, but now you, you think you're better than they are, so you're going to honor the prophets that your fathers killed. It's, you're going to build, you know, these, these kind of ornate structures, and it's kind of your way of saying, we're not like our forefathers. We're not like them. We don't kill prophets. We're really godly people. To which Jesus says, actually, not only have you not changed, but you're actually worse. You're worse than your forefathers. In verse 49, because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them, that is that generation that Jesus is talking to. I will send them prophets and I will send them apostles, some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute. So, so that generation that Jesus is talking to, they are the most privileged in all of Israel's history up to that point. God had sent them John the Baptist, who Jesus identified as the great, greatest prophet who had ever lived. Uh, God sent them the apostles uh, who, will, who will rise up, who will begin to proclaim God's word uh, through inspiration, write books in the New Testament. What do the people do to the, the apostles? They'll martyr them. They'll kill all of them. Well, they tried to. They killed most of them. One of them just wouldn't die um, at the time. And then, and then Jesus, God in the flesh. And they would kill him as well. And the point is this. All the prophets murdered throughout history don't add up to the heinous crime that, that this generation is about to do. Now, it makes me think, what about us? Right? How does this apply to us today? So you may say, well, <laughs> you know, contextually, this is just about them because we, well, we don't murder prophets today. We don't, you know, we don't, kill, our <laughs> we don't kill our pastors, right? We just, we just love them. We, and think about this. Think about this. If that generation was privileged, what about us? We have the entire word of God. I mean, they just, all they had was the Old Testament back then. And they couldn't, you know, there's no printing presses. They didn't have Bibles in their homes yet, 
Right, so think about this. They were privileged. What about us? We have the entire word of God. The Old Testament, the New Testament. We have the Holy Spirit inside of us to teach us that they didn't have. We have the testimony of church history. We have the works of great theologians that you can read anytime you want. We have, you know, Bible, we have the Bible on our phone now in multiple translations. You can drive down the road in your car and somebody will read it to you over the sound system. We have it up on the big screen. I mean, when you think about the Word of God that we have, so how does this relate to us? Well, I think here's part of it. Dirty cup respect for the Word of God is where we build big churches, you know, where we carry big Bibles and where we listen to lots of sermons and we fill in the blanks and we, you know, we nod our head. But then when we leave, we just ignore it. We don't obey it. We even reject it. You say, well, does that happen today in the church? Well, it happens all the time. And in fact, um, a couple weeks ago, I was in a conversation with someone in our church who had been um, doing some research on the internet and come across a guy, maybe you've heard of him, his name's John Pavlovitz. And uh, so this guy was a, was a pastor of a church, and I'm not sure exactly how he became not a pastor, but now he's, he calls himself a rogue pastor, which means he, he isn't actually attached to a church. He's kind of an internet pastor, so he blogs a lot. They like to put him on CNN. They put him in, on USA Today and all sorts of uh, news sites and stuff. He has some very, very popular blogs. He claims to be a Christian, claims to be a pastor, claims to be an evangelical, and loves to speak uh, for the church and speak for evangelicals. And so I've talked to a couple of people recently who said, I've read this guy named John Pavlovitz and he's a Christian, but he's saying some, some really different stuff and I'm, I'm really confused. What can you do? So I went on and did some research and I looked at a couple of his most popular blogs. And one of them, let me just read for you, just kind of to summarize this. It, it's called, What This Pastor Doesn't Believe About the Bible. That's what he writes. And uh, so I'm gonna read you, he says, 10 things that he doesn't believe about the Bible. Now remember, he claims to be a pastor, an evangelical, a Christian. Number one, he says, I don't believe the Bible is inspired by God, which is kind of a big place to start. So he's a pastor, he's a Christian. He claims to teach the word of God, but he doesn't believe the Bible is inspired by God. Number two, I don't believe the Bible explains the time and manner of earth's creation. Hmm. Number three, I don't believe the Bible accurately represents women for the times in which we live. Number four, I don't believe the Bible has much of consequence to say about gender identity and sexual orientation. Number five, I don't believe the Bible provides a unified, consistent message regarding marriage, war, violence, or sex. Number six, I don't believe the Bible is without error. Number seven, I don't believe the Bible is the only source through which we hear or experience God. Well, neither do we, uh, but he's kind of trying to set us up here. Number eight, I don't believe the Bible should guide our government. Well, and apparently most people agree with him in that respect. Uh, number nine, I don't believe the Bible can be objectively interpreted or evaluated. In other words, none of us are capable of really understanding what it means. And number 10, I don't believe the Bible is worthy of worship. Well, neither do we. We believe the God who gave us the Bible is worthy of worship. And then he adds a number 11, just for good measure, which he really just should have started with and left it at that. Number 11, I don't believe the Bible should be used to defend the Bible, which kind of tells you everything. In other words, he believes the Bible is not trustworthy. The Bible's not truth. So you can't use the Bible to defend the Bible. Now, here's the thing that I noticed when I read this. I noticed the first five words were the same for every one of these. I don't believe the Bible. 
And then he says this at the end of the article. This is the best part. Having said all this, none of these statements erase the respect I have for the Bible. Right? This man has no respect for the Bible. No respect. Zero. And this is exactly what we're talking about. This is exactly what the religious leaders of Jesus' day were doing. They acted like they respected the Bible, but they had no respect for the Bible. Folks, we need to be careful. I mean, we can look at a guy like John Pavlovich on the, on the internet and say, that guy's a nut job, or maybe that's just what I say, but um, we need to be careful that we don't reflect that in our own lives. Because inside out living is where we embrace God's word delivered to us on the inside. We embrace it. We receive it. We believe that it's from God. We believe it to be truth. When it says to forsake some sin, we agree with God on that. When it says to forgive someone, even if it's hard, we do that. When it says be generous, we do that. When it says share the gospel, we don't withhold the gospel. When it says speak the truth, we speak the truth. When it says be patient, we practice patience. When it says humble yourself and serve others, we do it. Is it hard sometimes? Is it difficult sometimes? Yes, it is, but we do it. Why? Because we believe that it's God's word. Amen? Amen. Woe number six. We'll move on. Uh, I don't want to get preachy here. Uh, number six, uh, dirty cut theology, right? Uh, dirty cut theology is this, to have a well-defined theology that is missing the key. So here's our last one. Let me explain this to you. He says, woe to you experts in the law because you have taken away the key to knowledge. The key to knowledge. That's kind of an important word there, the key. You yourselves have not entered and you have hindered those who were entering. So now the religious leaders of Jesus' day had what we might call a well-defined, intricate theology. They had added over 6,000 rules to the Bible, and to that added rituals, ceremonies, books, schools of teaching, teachers, and programs. And they were supposed to be teachers of the word. They were to make it clear. They were to make it plain. That was their job. Stand up, teach God's word, not teach their view of the word, not do what a lot of pastors do today. A lot of pastors today teach about the word. They don't teach the word. They teach about the word. You ever heard someone preach and they're like, so they're like, I'm going to preach today on, you know, Luke 11, 35, but they never actually get to that passage. They just kind of talk about it. So we don't want to just talk about the word. We want to we actually teach the word. But here's what they did. They had actually locked up the truth of the Bible and thrown away the key. Now, what was the key? Two ideas here about what the key was, and they're probably both true. The first is that they had replaced scripture with man-made rules. So, so the key was the Bible itself. They threw out the Bible. And they weren't teaching the Bible anymore. They were teaching things about the Bible. They were teaching their rules. In fact, the Mishnah says that it was a bigger sin to break one of the religious leaders' rules than it was to break one of God's 613 laws. It was worse to break a man-made rule. And here was the reasoning. Because they believed that, that the, their own rules were very crystal clear where God's rules were kind of vague. And so what they would teach is it was worse to break a man-made rule than a rule that came from God. So some think the key is they'd actually just thrown away the Bible. They weren't teaching the Bible anymore, just their own rules. The second theory, though, is this, and I think this is more to the point. The key was Jesus. They had taken Jesus out of the equation. In other words, what we, what we learn is this as we read the Bible, that the Old Testament is all about Jesus. The Old Testament. See, a lot of Christians today think, 
Well, the Old Testament is like, you know, grouchy God and grumpy God and rules and wars and all this stuff. And then the New Testament is like the love God. Like he, you know, woke up on the right side of the bed in the New Testament. Now he's feeling better. And the Old Testament is law and the New Testament is grace. But in fact, the Old Testament is about Jesus. The characters are about Jesus. The story's about Jesus. The laws are about Jesus. In John 5, he says this, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, notice Jesus says, it is they that bear witness about me. So we saw this a few weeks ago. Remember Jesus was talking about Jonah and being in the belly of the whale. And Jesus says, actually, that was about me. That was a picture of what I would do. That's what Jesus is saying. So the story of Jonah and the whale is actually a story about Jesus. So it was really awesome because last night after church, actually, uh, we were singing the last song and I was walking out and there's a young man in the church who came out with me and he said, I have a question for you. He said, so we're standing in the back while everyone's singing and he says, wait, you're telling me that everything in the Old Testament is about Jesus. I'm like, yeah, that's right. He's like, wait a minute, Adam and Eve in the garden are about Jesus? Like, yes, yes. Genesis 3, because I'd mentioned Genesis 3 last night. Yes, in fact, in Genesis 3, you'll find something we call the Proto-Evangelion, which means first gospel. You can go to Genesis chapter 3 and see the gospel was already being delivered in Genesis chapter 3. He's like, you mean Cain and Abel are about Jesus? Yeah. Noah's Ark? Uh-huh. Abraham? Mm-hmm. Offering Isaac? Absolutely. Moses is about Jesus? Mm-hmm. The Exodus? The Ten Commandments? The Sabbath? The Promised Land? The Temple? And on and on. It's all about Jesus? Yes. And here's the point. If you take Jesus out of the Old Testament you take away the key to understanding it. And that's what the religious leaders did. They rejected Jesus. They rejected him as, as God. They cast him aside. And his point is this. If you throw me out of the equation, you'll never understand the Bible. Never. That's why we talk about Jesus like a broken record around here all the time. Every sermon is about Jesus. You're like, don't you have anything else? No. All we do every weekend is talk about Jesus. Guess what they're doing this weekend at, uh, at youth camp? Guess what Matthias is teaching about? Jesus, yes, yes. Guess what, they're Guess what Pastor Lee's teaching next door right now? Jesus, and in back in Kids Center, right? Jesus, and every, that's what we do. That's all we have, because it's the key to understanding Scripture. So here's my question for you. What about your theology? What about your theology? Do, or, do your conversations so when I say theology, what I simply mean is this. Theology is kind of what we believe inside about God. Because what we truly believe inside about God will always come out in our conversations, right? Always. Always. So I'm not asking you to figure out a way to become a highfalutin Christian who works the gospel into all your conversations. I'm just asking you to let God change your heart and your mind. Because when he does, guess what's going to come out? Whatever is inside. So my question is, do your conversations tend to be dirty cup conversations? A dirty cup conversation could be about anything. The weather, sports, politics, your cat's latest health issue, we know whatever it is, without Jesus involved, which probably shouldn't be involved in the last one, but without Jesus being involved in that conversation, without letting the gospel inform your conversation. But inside out living is where we allow the gospel implanted in us, the word of God in our hearts, where we allow it to just naturally come out. 
just naturally come out in our conversations with our spouses. Naturally let it come out in our conversation with our kids. Again, I'm not asking you to figure out on the outside how to have, a, how to have spiritual jargon and speak Christianese. And that. That's not what we're talking about. That's outside in living. Inside out is that you let God change your heart. That you work on the inside so that it comes out in your words. Here's how the story ends, verse 53. When Jesus left there, all the Pharisees were so amazed at his teaching that they dropped to their knees and they all accepted Jesus, got baptized, and became Christians, right? No, when they left there, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. This story illustrates for us two paths or reactions all of us have the choice to make when we hear the word of God. Dirty cup living or inside out living. Dirty cup living is all about looking good on the outside to the detriment of my soul. Dirty cup living is where I leave from reading the word or leave from hearing a sermon and the only thing I really think about is, do I look okay? Am I dressed okay? Am I saying the right words? Am I impressing people? To the detriment of your soul. Do I look good? Inside out living is completely different. That's loving and trusting Jesus from the inside out with my soul and then cooperating with him to change the way I live outside. Starting inside, starting inside, and then working outside. And I've had several conversations over the last few weeks with people who have said to me, well, pastor, I, I appreciate the inside thing, but really I think you kind of, in the, you gotta make sure though, right, that you're focusing on the outside because if the inside is a mess, then at least you need to keep the outside going for a while. You've got to keep the outside looking good and then work on the inside. And here would be my only reaction to that. I don't think any of us have enough bandwidth in our life to focus on both. So my suggestion would be focus on the inside. Focus on the inside. Focus on your heart. Get the word of God in. Love God. Meditate on his word. Hold on to the word imparted to you. Let God change you from the inside. From the inside. You don't have time to do both. So let him work on the inside. Get into the word. Get into fellowship. Let him change the inside. Next step for you is you leave. Three things we talked about this morning. Ministry, the word, and theology. So ministry. Again, some of you may say, well, I, I don't actually have a ministry. Right? Ministry just means service. Every one of you have a ministry. Those of you who are married, you have a ministry with your husband or wife. You may say, well, I've never really thought of it that way. Well, it doesn't matter because you do. You're impacting them in one way or another. Those of you who have kids, those of you who have grandkids, those of you who have parents, you have a ministry. Those of you who interact with your neighbors, you have a ministry. Those of you who go to work and interact with people, you have a ministry. If you spend time with people, you have a ministry. Here's the way ministry works. Inside out living is this. First, I find my rest in Jesus. And then I help other people find their rest in Jesus. I don't add burdens. I don't add my preferences to other people. I just help them find Jesus. My question is, maybe the Spirit's put that on your heart this morning. There's someone in your life and your ministry with them has probably been more complicated. It's made their life more complicated, more burdensome than it's helped them. Who do you need to help? The second is the word. Where do you need to move from, from, from respect to belief? 
Where do you need to move from, I respect the word, <laughs> to I believe the word? And third, your theology. What conversations need the key right now? Who is it that you talk to? And you've kind of been avoiding talking about Jesus. You don't want to sound religious and all crazy and rolling in the aisles and hands in the air, right? You know, I'm not asking you to do any of that. Just, I'm just saying this. What conversations with people right now, who do you talk with where you actually have to hide who you are on the inside? You have to hide it. Where do you need to stop doing that? Where do you need to start letting Jesus come out of your conversations? Ministry, the word, theology. So the good news is we're done with the woes. All right, so we'll move on next week, chapter 12. Let's pray together.